Folks, um, please do have uh, your Bibles open there at the, the opening chapter of the book of Romans. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your many mercies to us. We thank you for Jesus, your son whom you sent into this world to die in our place, taking the punishment that rightfully is ours, carrying it for us so that we might be acquitted, forgiven, and set free. Lord, we thank you for the provision you've made for the news about Jesus to be transmitted to us. Thank you for your written word. Thank you for the, the record of the gospel. Now, thank you that we can open your word at any time and read this wonderful news of your saving work in Jesus. Lord, we thank you this evening for the book of Romans a book which has played such an important part in the history of your church and been such a blessing to so many of your people. Be, be with us now as we come to open this part of your word to hear its message afresh for us for now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, it's always exciting to begin a new series. Um, particularly so when you, you maybe have a sense that you're going to one of the really big books of the Bible. So we're, we're going very big this autumn. In the morning times, we're in Deuteronomy, one of the, the big books of the Old Testament. And this evening, we're starting a new series of studies in, in Romans. Uh, by the way, I just want to say, and I'll keep saying it throughout this series, it, some of you here will have heard quite a number of series of teachings in Romans throughout your lifetime. That, that's quite likely if you've been in a church like this or um, other churches that teach God's word. You, you'll have had a few goes at the book of Romans. I, I don't know how much chance you've taken to study it for yourself, to, to read it for yourself, to, to trust that God's spirit would give you something in between Sundays and as you read his word. Maybe, maybe you're daunted by a book of Romans, but I'd encourage you not to be. Uh, I, I believe that God's word speaks to any of us. E even if you don't get everything that it says, you can get a lot of what it says. And, and you'll see I'm holding in my hands my, my Romans journal. If you don't have one of these, um, have a look at, at the welcome desk on your way out and see if that's something that might help you uh, over the next months to read, read Romans. You if you do what I do, you read it, you keep a pencil behind your ear and you underline things and you, you write question marks and tick things that you've understood. And um, I'd encourage you to do that. So as I preach, I'm going to be preaching not, not just to impress you with, with things that I've learned, but to try and draw you into the learning experience, okay? So teaching you in a way that I hope you can be learning as we go. As part of my preparations for this series in Romans, I, I, I turned to the notes I have, handwritten notes, which, praise God, I can read, but, but you couldn't read them. Um, 
from 1999. They're, they're so old that the ink's starting to fade. I, I don't know that if you know that, even Barrow Pen, the ink fades after a while. So Dr. Gordon Fee, June of 1999. In the opening line of his lecture series, he said, Romans is possibly the most influential book in Western culture. That's quite a claim for just 16 chapters in our New Testament. Quite a claim for this series we're about to start. He goes on to say that nobody could have predicted the influence of this letter when it first arrived in Rome. Hardly anybody read it, and certainly not anyone of influence. There was a lot you could read in Rome, imperial decrees, exquisite poetry, finely crafted moral philosophy, and a lot of it was world class. And yet in the passage of time, this letter left all those other writings trailing in its wake. Paul's letter to the Romans has had a far greater impact on its reader, readers than the volumes of all those Roman writers put together. Now, if you've been coming along regularly to our evening services the last few months, we're at a bit of an advantage here as we open the book of Romans. It, we're not coming to it entirely cold. In our book-by-book book program, we've profiled a couple of Paul's letters, and we've had a chance to think a little bit about how to read one of Paul's letters. I, I don't want us to forget all that now that we come to the book of Romans. This is the time to, to keep that stuff in the front of our mind. So we learned that all these letters are not the same. They're, they're occasional documents. That, that, that means they were written for a real purpose. Um, they were not written to us. This is harder to get your head around. They're not written to us, but they are God's word for us. And when we read them, we're only getting one half of a conversation. Don't worry if you can't remember that. I'm simply reminding you that we said that kind of thing. And I'm telling you that I'll be bearing that in mind um, as I try to teach from the book of Romans. One last introductory comment. Whether you feel like you know Romans well because you've sat through a lot of preaching series or you feel like you don't know it at all. You hear other people talking about it or you're listening to me now and you get a sense, oh, this feels important, but I don't know why. Whether you're at either end of that spectrum, I'm going to invite you this evening to approach Romans without any preconceptions. The church hasn't always done this well over the years. Because of the influence that Romans had, has had at certain points in history, maybe during the Reformation, uh, Protestant churches like ours, quite often we come to Romans absolutely clear already of what it says without even taking the bother to read it. I don't want us to do that. I, I want us certainly to be mindful of, of the history of its interpretation. But before we listen to any commentator or any historical voices, I want us to read God's word for itself. Again, let me share some material from Gordon Fee's lecture notes. He said, many of us don't come with a clean slate. Our task in understanding Romans is therefore complicated. We don't read the book on its own terms. We don't hear it for itself. He goes on, all our prior agendas need to come under the discipline of exegesis. That, that just means a plain study of the text. Let the text speak for itself. We need to learn to read the text of Romans 
before we listen to our theologians and not the other way around. Okay? So I'll say more about that as we read Romans throughout our series together. In the meantime, let's get stuck in. We're going to focus on these 17 verses that we have read here in chapter 1, and we're going to notice three things. Paul's gospel in verses 1 to 6, Paul's purpose in verses 17, sorry, 7 through to 15, and then Paul's confidence in verses 16 to 17. We get a considerable insight into Paul's thinking about the gospel in the very opening verses of this letter. So letter writing in the ancient world followed different conventions than ours. Nowadays, we would sign off a letter with our name at the end. So if you opened the letter and you didn't know who it was from, you'll know what I mean. You turn to the back, don't you? You turn to see who it's from. You didn't need to do that with letters in Paul's times because you start with, with introducing yourself as the writer. So in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul introduces himself as the writer. If we were just putting in the very basic ingredients of a letter in these times, we would jump, as soon as Paul tells us who he is, you could jump to verse 7, because the writer would then tell us who he's addressing his letter to. And if you look down there, it's to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. The letter would work if it just said, from Paul to all who are loved by God in Rome and called to be saints. But Paul usually elaborates whenever he's introducing himself at the start of a letter, and it's certainly the case here in Rome. And, and this elaboration that he makes gives us a real insight into how he thinks about the gospel. Look at verse 1. He says he's a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. He uses two adjectives, two ways of describing himself. That, that word that's translated servant, it's really the word slave. It has a very strong sense of commitment, a very strong sense that I have a master and I'm in his service. So Paul at this point is, is putting himself in a long succession of men and women, Old and New Testament, who are, who are servants or slaves of the Lord. Paul's Jesus' slave. But he's also an apostle. You might know that an apostle means that you're sent. But it's a bit more than that. An apostle carries a great authority he carries the authority of the sender and he brings it to the location where, where he's operating. So Paul is representing Jesus. He's carrying Jesus' message. Paul is Jesus' apostle. I, I love, there's a real balance here in terms of how Paul thinks of himself. Servant, we might think, well, well that's quite a humble, low view of yourself. I'm a servant but I'm an apostle. I've been sent by Christ. I'm authorized by him. I'm here in his name. He's able to hold both of those things in tension. Uh, and what a lovely sense of identity that, that gives him a serving apostle. He tells us that he's an apostle set apart from the gospel. Uh, and in the following verses, he, he, he gives us really a six-point analysis 
of the gospel. I, I felt for Alan as he was reading that, and uh, maybe you did too. Paul's, Paul's sentences, they go on forever, don't they? So you, you and I would have spoken that in four or five different sentences. So, so let's notice what he says in the, about the gospel in this long introductory sentence. First thing we notice, and I'll move through these very quickly, the origin of the gospel is God. Leon Morris says, Dr. Leon Morris, the God is the most important word in this epistle. Romans is a book about God. No topic is treated with anything like the frequency of God. Paul touches, everything Paul touches in the letter relates to God. So let us be clear about this. The Christian good news is the gospel of God. So Paul hasn't invented this. It's not his. He's been given it. It's been revealed to him and entrusted to him by God. Second thing, the, tr the proof of the gospel is scripture. Paul says that the gospel of God was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. There, there's an interesting thing going on here. Although God revealed fresh things to, to his apostles in the era of Jesus Christ and his disciples and, and those like Paul who came after him, that gospel's not new. It's not a novelty. God had already promised it through the prophets in the Old Testament and was very clear that the Old Testament scriptures spoke about him. So Jesus Christ, he understood himself. He, he understood himself as the son of man that Daniel speaks about in chapter 7. He understood himself as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. So the, the proof of the gospel is scripture. The substance of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Look, look at this third thing that Paul has to say about the gospel of God. It's regarding his son. That, that's what the gospel is going to be about. It's going to be about Jesus. He, he elaborates on Jesus in verses 3 and 4. And, and again, there's a lovely balance in how Paul talks about Jesus. He's a descendant of David. So he's talking about his ancestry, his human uh, identity but he's also the son of God. He, he was born or became a son of David, but he was declared God's son. It's hidden from us a little bit in the English translation, but in their Greek, we're told that he was a descendant of David, katasarka, that means according to the flesh, and that he was declared the son of God, katanuma hageosunes, according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus, fully human and fully divine. We don't easily understand that. That's a sermon in its own. But Paul mentions it. And he, he wants us to understand that this gospel is going to be about this Jesus. Fourth thing that Paul mentions right here at the outset about this gospel. It's for all nations. Verse 5 it's through God and for the sake of God's name that he received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles. Paul wants us to know right at the outset that this gospel is for everyone. Its scope is universal. Paul, if you know anything about him, is a patriotic Jew. 
He loved his own Jewish people very dearly. But at the same time, he has this sense that he's been called as an apostle to the Gentiles. John Stott says, we too, if we're to be committed to world mission, will have to be liberated from all pride of race, nation, tribe, caste, or class, and acknowledge that God's gospel is for everyone, without exception and distinction. Folks, I think almost every one of us would nod in agreement to that. I think it's hard to own that fully and finally, that the gospel really is for everyone. The purpose of the gospel, Paul says, is the obedience of faith. Paul says that his role as an apostle is to call people to the obedience that comes from faith. So that's, this is interesting. Paul's definition uh, of the response that the gospel commands, it's not simply faith, but faith that demonstrates its authenticity by obedience. Uh, folks, I, I need to pause for a second here and offer a pastoral reflection and think about my work here as a teaching elder. When I was a younger minister setting off trying to work out what my calling is. I, I think it's very important, whatever work you do, to know what your calling is. What are you trying to do? If somebody had asked me, what, what's your purpose, Christoph? What is it you're doing? I would have said something like, well, well, my calling is to preach God's word. And that's a good answer. To a point. It's not the answer I would give nowadays. You see, over the years, I've realized that there's a way of preaching absolute orthodoxy that allows a community to remain unchanged. There's a way of preaching that almost gives a community permission, so long as it's heard enough orthodox preaching. It almost gives it permission to remain unchanged. In these communities, orthodoxy, correct belief, doesn't lead to orthopraxy, correct behavior. And actually, truth be told, people have given up expecting any of that transformation. That's not, friends, how it should be. Simply preaching the word in this manner is not enough. It wouldn't have satisfied Paul. It doesn't make sense of a single one of the letters he wrote. We preach for a response like the one that Paul seeks for with his gospel. The obedience that comes from faith. And a sixth and final uh, just thing to notice about Paul's gospel. The goal of the gospel is the honor of Jesus. Do you see the words for his name's sake at the end of verse 5? They really come at the end of this whole long uh, sentence, this whole long idea. They form the climax. Why does Paul want to bring the nations to the obedience that comes from faith? It's for the glory of Jesus. That's where this is all driving. In his letter to the Philippians, he puts it like this. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul wants to share the gospel so that every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. That's why we share the gospel 
today. We can summarize everything that Paul's said about the gospel in these first six verses with one short sentence. If you're taking notes and you missed all that, here you go. You get it all in, in one short sentence. The gospel is the good news of God about Jesus Christ agreeing with scripture for the nations resulting in the obedience that comes from faith and for the sake of God's glory. It's about Jesus Christ agreeing with scripture for the nations resulting in the obedience that comes from faith and for the sake of God's glory. As we study this book of Romans, we're going to see that it's about this gospel. It's no mistake that Paul begins by telling us that this letter is going to be about the gospel. So we've thought about Paul's gospel. We will, of course, be thinking about the gospel at every turn as we study our way through this letter. Let's move to the second point raised by our passage. Paul's purpose in writing this letter, it comes to the fore, especially in verses 7 to 15. In verse 7, we see that the letter is addressed to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. So we, we, we know that. Paul's writing to the Christians in Rome. But notice what he says in verse 8. He follows his normal custom. He often thanks God for the people that he's writing to. What a lovely thing to do. Why don't church leaders do that more? Let their people know that there's thanks in their heart for them. I think I've done that occasionally, and I haven't written it in my notes, but I feel inclined to say it now. I'm grateful to God for you. Many of you individually, but all of you collectively. That's what a pastor would be saying. He thanks God for those in Rome, but he does it in a different way. He says he thanks God because of your faith that's re being reported all over the world. You see, he's thankful not for what he's seen, but only for what he's heard. Paul didn't plant the church in Rome, and he hasn't had the chance to visit them yet. So the things he knows are only by report. And that changes things quite considerably if you think about it. If you get a letter from Paul when Paul has planted the church in your city and he spent some months there, then you have a particular relationship with Paul. That, that's absent in this letter to Rome and it's, it's maybe worth being aware of that. I think it explains as well why Paul in Romans goes to greater lengths than he does in any other letter writing his gospel. He'd never preached it to them. In some of the other letters, he's able to say, do you remember what I taught you when I was with you? He can't do that with the Romans. And that's why, in part, he may have chosen to, to write as much of the gospel as he has. Look at verse 9. He hasn't been with them yet, but he's dying to see them. God, whom I serve in my spirit, 
in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness, how I constantly remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. It's very common for Paul to say, I'm praying for you, but it's much less common for him to say, I'm praying that I'll be able to get to see you. Okay? Actually, if you keep reading down to verse 15, you'll see that this is the basic gist of, of this whole early part of the letter. I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Paul wants to go to Rome. So remember what we're doing here. We're thinking about Paul's purpose in writing this letter. Paul wants to visit Rome, and he's writing this letter as a way to prepare for his visit. But why does Paul want to visit Rome? We need to go near the end of the letter to find out. So flick with me to chapter 15. I'll not ask you to do too much flicking around this evening, but we'll go towards the end of the letter, chapter 15. In verses 22 to 29, Paul tells the, the Romans about a three-location itinerary that he has planned for the future. Jerusalem, Rome, and Spain. Jerusalem is his immediate destination. Paul has completed a, a money collection. He's been gathering up money from the Gentile churches that he's planted. And he's now on his way to Rome to deliver that money to the Jewish saints there. This collection was a really big deal to Paul. I don't know if you know that. None of the letters that he wrote in his third missionary journey, he fails to mention this collection. On the one hand, it's an expression of generosity. It's exactly on the money of what we were talking about here this morning. That's why he wrote about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That's why we went there this morning where he points us to Jesus Christ, the one who was rich but became poor. That, that's all in the context of this collection. So on the one hand, it's an expression of generosity, but for Paul, this gift has a, a much deeper, a, a much deeper concern. He wants to use this gift to cement the fractured relationships between Gentiles and Jews. The Gentile churches of his mission field and the Jewish churches in the home country. Paul's concerned. He's wondering, how's, how's this going to go? How's my collection going to be received? Look at verse 31. Pray that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there. Paul is wondering, will they receive my gift? Will they acknowledge the links that exist now between Jewish and Gentile believers together in one people of God? Or are they going to reject it because they're suspicious of me and these law-free Gentile churches that I've planted? So Jerusalem is the first point on Paul's itinerary. Rome is the second stage on Paul's itinerary. You can see that in verses 24 and 28. Paul, on the one hand, is very sincere. He really does want to go to Rome. But he's very honest also. 
he, he talks about his desire to go to Rome to preach the gospel there, but he doesn't hide the fact that he wants to move on from Rome and, and is planning to go to Spain, the third location on his itinerary. This passage here in chapter 15 gives us a fascinating insight into Paul's reasoning. How does he know where to plant his next church? How would you know? Look at verse 20. Paul says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Paul loves going to what we might call nowadays unevangelized people groups and preaching the gospel there. This, this task of going to a community that hasn't heard the gospel, that doesn't have a church, that's what Paul loves to do. That's what he feels his calling is. Now, the thing is, and this is just incredible when you think about it, he feels he's done that from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. Can you imagine that? with all the limitations of that culture, of communication, of transport. But in the space of a couple of decades, he's taken the gospel from Jerusalem right around to Rome. It's, it's awesome. It's incredible. Verse 19, he gives us a, a sort of a verbal heat map showing the extent of his church planting legacy from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. That's modern-day Albania the former, and the former Yugoslavia. I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. So on his first three missionary journeys, he's planted churches in each of the major metropolitan centers throughout the eastern Mediterranean. Here's the lovely thing. He doesn't hang around. Paul's no bad smell kind of a guy. He moves on makes them responsible to take the gospel into their cities, into their communities. He's going to go on and bring the gospel to new places where it hasn't been before and plant new churches. Paul sets his sights on virgin gospel territory in the far western end of the Mediterranean. He's heading for Spain. What we're trying to do here very quickly is to work out Paul's purpose in writing this letter. And now that we've understood his personal circumstances, we can see what Paul's letter might be, be doing. Paul's letter to the Romans functions as a letter of introduction. For the Romans, this letter would be like receiving a letter from a missionary, somebody that we have heard of but we've never met, and he's asking us to partner with him in his work. Here's what I want to do, the missionary tells us. I want to go and preach in unevangelized Spain. Here's what I want to preach. I'll spell out the content of my message in this letter. What do you think? Will you partner with me? And that's why we find the longest and fullest version of Paul's gospel that you'll find anywhere in his letters. So there it is. Paul's purpose in writing the letter to the Romans. But only in part. What I've just described there is Paul's purpose in writing to the Romans as it relates to himself. That's the reason Paul would want to write to the Romans. 
But as we read the whole letter to the Romans, particularly as we come toward the end of the letter, we're going to see Paul doing what he does in all of his letters, and that is responding to the circumstances in the church that he's writing to. This is something that often gets lost. It's the thing that I've been laboring with you as I've been talking about how to read Paul's letters. We need to know what's going on in that church. What are the issues that he's writing to them about? It's, it's particularly difficult in Romans because they're almost invisible until at least chapters 12 and 13 and beyond. So we read for 10 and 11 chapters before we know anything much about what's going on in Rome. But here's the thing. Paul knew about the issues that were going on in Rome. Those in Rome knew about the issues that were going on in their church. And they would have read Paul's letter knowing that it was addressing those issues. If we're going to understand the letter, we must read it with those issues, those circumstances in Rome in our minds. Flick with me quickly to Acts chapter 18, the opening couple of verses. In Acts 17, Luke has told us about Paul's visit to Athens. Now, in chapter 18, verse 1, he tells us Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. This is one of those moments where history attests what we read in the New Testament. In AD 49, the Roman Emperor Claudius expelled Jews from Rome. Why did he do that? Well, a number of Roman historians tell us. Suetonius tells us that Claudius expelled from Rome the Jews who were constantly making disturbances at the instigation of a Crestus. That's a Latin spelling. And scholars agree that it's almost certainly uh, relating to, referring to Jesus, the Christ. So what we should imagine here is somewhat like what we read a few months ago when we were studying First Thessalonians. When the gospel comes to a city, when people respond, there's often conflict between the Jews, those Jews who respond to the message of the gospel and those who don't. The Messianic Jews often face severe opposition and persecution at the hands of the other Jews. It seems that this happened in Rome. To an outsider like Claudius, he, he, the niceties of who's following Jesus and, and all of that, that's all lost in him. All he sees is the, the Jews squabbling right out and the Jews are exiled from Rome. Now imagine the situation in the Roman churches in AD 49. There's a network of these house churches in the cities. By the time Paul writes in the mid-50s, there are still only six of them. This is not a big operation. The church in Rome isn't much bigger than an evening service at Hamilton Road. But imagine for a moment the, the situation in 49, the congregations are like most in, in these churches in the empire that Paul has planted. They're made up of Jews and non-Jews. 
And then all of a sudden, the Jews are all expelled. History tells us that after the death of Claudius, five years later in AD 54, the edict of Claudius was reversed and exiled Jews were allowed to return to Rome. So picture the scene. The Messianic Jews, the Jewish Christians, return. What do they find? They find that a church that used to have a lot of Jewish flavor, all of a sudden has become very non-Jewish in its membership, in its custom, and its practice. Can you imagine the tension created between Jewish and Gentile Christians? Just think of what it's like to have fellowship with a, a Baptist or an Anglican and ratchet that up a long, long way. Paul's writing to a church that's suffering deep, deep division. And that's his second purpose. And we're going to see it throughout this letter. We don't have to wait till the end of the letter when he makes it explicit to see signs of it right the way through. I'm going to argue that Paul writes this letter with both purposes in mind. The second purpose is related to the first. The second purpose is to see this divided church unified because he can't bear to see Christian brothers and sisters divided. But the second purpose also serves the first. He needs a united church, Jew and Gentile, if they're to serve as an effective sending church for him to take the gospel further west to Spain. We've thought there about Paul's purposes in writing. What's my purpose in preaching? I, I've told you that I often will try to explain to you why I choose to preach a particular part of God's word at a particular moment in our journey as a church family. I'm drawn to both of these purposes. I'm drawn to Paul's first purpose as he tries to establish a missional relationship between himself and this congregation in Rome and tries to put the gospel right at the center of that. Folks, we're still in the early stages of, of a partnership minister and congregation. We're still trying to learn how to bring the gospel to the unchurched people in our own town, never mind beyond that. We want to put the gospel right at the center of that. We, we, we want to be learning and, and relearning and, and, and growing in the gospel. And that's so important that we do that at this moment in time. That, that's right at the center of my purposes in choosing to preach Romans. I'm drawn to preach Romans because I'm drawn to Paul's second purpose also, to preach the gospel for the healing of divisions and the forging of unity. We're divided here at Hamilton Road, at least in part. We're divided regarding what kind of preaching we like, we're divided along generational lines. We have our hierarchies and our cliques. 
we need to be captured once more by the one gospel that creates the one people of God. And that, by the way, is what we're going to call this series. Because I think it captures both of Paul's purposes. One gospel, one people. We've thought about Paul's gospel and Paul's purpose. Finally and very briefly, Paul's confidence. Verses 16 to 17. We don't need to go very deep here. They're, they're verses that we'll return to often throughout the series. They're, they're probably like the theme verses for the book of Romans. You could certainly make that case. In one sense, they act as a, a short table of contents for the whole letter, which we're going to study in the weeks ahead. Let's notice just two things. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. We've already heard that God is the prime agent in Paul's letter. Paul can't save the Gentiles any more than the Jewish law could save the Jews. The mess of human sin is far too great and far too deep. It'll take God himself to intervene. We were lost. We're going to see that. Until God in love sent his son, the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. So the, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ releases that power of God into the lives of those who trust in Jesus and believe. They're declared righteous, verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Friends, what we're going to see in Romans is that the gospel is the only way to be made right with God, whether you're a first century Jew or Gentile or whether you're a 21st century person of any background or persuasion. There's only one gospel, one way to be made right with God. Nothing else will do. Paul goes to great lengths throughout this letter to emphasize that. The second thing that we can see here is that the gospel is for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. We've learned that the church in Rome is divided between people of very different backgrounds, very different experiences. It matters not, Paul says. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, what you have in common is much greater than what divides you. This is the thing about Romans that's really, really rocked me recently. Paul's whole letter is about showing people what they have in common. And he starts by showing them for two or three chapters about the sin that we have in common. All sinners, your Jewish sinners or your Gentile sinners, it matters. You have God's mercy in common. That's what he'll, he'll go on to show them as he preaches the gospel to them. And if you respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have that faith in Jesus in common. What you have in common is far, far greater and deeper than anything that divides you. There's one gospel, and it creates one people of God. That's what Paul wrote to the people in Rome.
And that's what we want to learn as we study this great letter together. Let's join together and let's pray.